Please turn with me now to our New Testament reading, our sermon text in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 17. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, do you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is very powerful. It is like a two-edged sword, more powerful than any other thing that can be imagined. Now, Lord, you would grant illumination to us this day, that you'd enable me to preach these truths rightly, and that, Lord, you would bring them to bear upon our hearts and our minds, that you'd grant us understanding in this great subject of the nature of the kingdom of God. Pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're here now in Luke chapter 13 and verses 18 to 24, these seven verses. And in this section, we have what would appear to be two very different, almost incompatible descriptions of the kingdom of God. Now, the temptation would be to deal with one at one point and to deal with the other on another. And I think, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe in some situations that's the best way to deal with it. But I felt compelled to bring these things together because I think that they're, they're juxtaposed. They're put next to one another in the Word of God for a purpose. That you have one description that seems one, one way and then another one that seems to be going in a different direction. And I think particularly in a day in a, a day and age in which understanding about the nature of the kingdom of God is, is really at a low ebb, there's widespread confusion about these things. This is an opportunity to get straight on 
is an opportunity for us to be able to put these things together. Because in some sense, it isn't straightforward. There isn't a single word, there isn't a single description that actually tells you everything that you need to know about the kingdom of God. There is this thing that is true, and there's also this other thing that is true. And we have to put them together in a coherent picture that tells us about this kingdom. Because we want to know about this kingdom, don't we? This is what it's all about. This is what we're here to do. This is, this is what we're looking forward to from now and eternity of being with the Lord in his kingdom. This is what it's all about. Well, the section begins with two illustrations, right? The mustard seed and the leaven. And they depict a kingdom that appears, appears to be small and insignificant. Yet one that grows to an enormous size. It it permeates everything around it. It seems to be incredibly powerful for such a small and insignificant thing. It's a tiny mustard seed turning into this huge mustard plant. And like a little bit of leaven, leavening an entire loaf. This is the kingdom of God. It starts from very small Beginnings often appearing to be insignificant to the world around, and yet it is growing all the time, and will soon enough become great in every way as the power of the of the Holy Spirit brought to bear on the means of grace means that it permeates the whole world. Then we have on the other hand, we have the, the question verse twenty three Lord, are there few who are saved? Few. And Jesus answered in verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's not actually the word many that is applied to those who are in the kingdom this time. It's the word few. And the entrance is not so wonderfully huge and, and universal. Rather, it is narrow. Now, if we stop there, these descriptions of the kingdom seem almost incompatible. We, we have a kingdom that, though it appears to be small and insignificant, yet it's going to become huge. It's going to permeate everything around it. Yet, on the other hand, the way into it is narrow, and there are not many who will be part of it. Well, these things are all true. These are different aspects of the same kingdom. It certainly will be great because it has a great king. How could it not be great? And these means that are are given for its growth, they are infallible. Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, as the Holy Spirit uses these things, nothing is going to stand in the way of the building of God's church. But it will not always look like it is so powerful. It will not always look like it is so great. In fact, many times we will look out. Many times the people of this world will look at it and say it's small and weak and insignificant. Those things are true. And moreover, although there will be so many, although this, ki- this kingdom will grow to such a great size, and, and in absolute terms, there will be so many brought into the kingdom. As we know, as we look in Revelation, we, you see the picture of those, of this great multitude whom no man could number, of every tribe and tongue under heaven, yet relative, relative to the numbers of people that have ever lived, it is yet a few who find their way into this kingdom. And mainly and supremely and of most importance, although this kingdom is everywhere, it permeates everything around, it goes into the whole world, the entrance is exceedingly narrow. 
Well, the title of the sermon is The Narrow Way into a Great Kingdom. And I have four points. The kingdom appears small and insignificant. Second, yet will be great and powerful. Thirdly, the way to it is narrow. And fourth, strive to enter it. The kingdom appears small and insignificant. Yet it will be great and powerful. The way into it is narrow, so strive to enter it. Well, first point, the kingdom appears small and insignificant. He says in verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I, to what shall I compare it? And I think right away you get a sense that there is something unique about the kingdom that does not lend itself to a simplistic, one-dimensional understanding. The Lord himself is saying, to what shall I like in it? He says in verse 19, it is like a mustard seed. The smallest of all the seeds that they might have been familiar with. I don't know if you've seen one of it as small. You have seen one, haven't you? You've experienced mustard and there's mustard seed to be found in it. It's a very small seed. It's not like, for instance, a bulb. Now, a bulb, you see. And and it's not difficult to imagine that it might be alive. It's this large And it will soon enough produce a plant. You can imagine it because the plant is not actually much bigger than the bulb itself. But now a mustard seed, it's so small you might even mistake it for to be nothing at all. Just a speck of dust or dirt on the ground. And that's all it is. The kingdom appears, you see, in that sense. The kingdom will appear to be small. And similarly, in, in verse 20, he said again, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven. And here it's not the thing that is absolute. Although the granules of leaven actually actually are very small in themselves, it's the amount of it that we're talking about. It's not a great amount. It's not like the wheat. There's a lot of wheat. Or the water. There's a lot of that. But the leaven is a small amount that is put in. A little bit. Just a little bit of leaven. And comparison to the other ingredients, it seems utterly insignificant and weak. What is it going to do to this great big lump of dough? What is it going to do to it? And if, if that's all you knew, if that was the end of the story, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Small on the one hand and insignificant and, and, and weak on the other. This would tell you the kingdom of God is a small and insignificant thing. But of course we know that's not the end of the story. right? It appears, and we'll speak more about this later, it appears to be a small and insignificant thing, certainly at its beginning. But our second point reminds us that it will be great and powerful. This is the way it begins. This is the way it appears throughout much of its time. But it will become great and powerful. Let's see how those illustrations finish. He says in verse 18, What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. It doesn't happen with the other herbs. It doesn't happen with lettuce. It doesn't happen with carrots. It doesn't happen with all the other sort of things that you might make. But this mustard seed, it becomes such a large plant. It's like a tree. And, and actually birds can come and nest in its branches. Huge plant. Smallest, the smallest of seed becoming the, the largest of plants. In verse 20, there, again he said, what shall I, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a, ma- a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all 
Leavened. Three measures of meal. That's not a small amount. It's a large amount of meal. A little bit of leaven puts it in there. What an amazing, amazingly potent subject. Uh, a thing that, that, can, that can bring about such a transformation of this meal. Now, what we begin to understand then is that this kingdom, though it appears so weak, so insignificant, it's actually, it's going to be huge. It's going to be, it's powerful. That's the nature of, of what it is. You can mistake it. You wouldn't immediately grasp its dimensions. You wouldn't immediately grasp its power just by looking at it. Its extent cannot rightly be judged by what you see right now. And there's absolutely no relationship between the appearance or lack thereof of its power and what it's actually capable of doing. Extremely important. Extremely important things, you see. Because if we understood, if we believed, if we thought in worldly terms about the kingdom of God, then we would surely be expecting worldly manifestations of power, worldly manifestations of significance. Now you can see why Jesus has got to set them straight on this. Because more than once as we've been going through this Gospel of Luke, we have seen that they are expecting a worldly and earthly Messiah, one who is going to take control of that nation, one who is going to take control of that culture and, and rule over it in the most visible and immediate sort of way. And they are constantly being tempted of, of, of saying, when is this going to happen? When, it, when are we going to assume power? As you know, they're all jockeying for position in the cabinet. And they wanted to be on his right and his left. And they wanted to reign with him. There they are, this band, this insignificant band of disciples, so small. And they're expecting any day for all that to change. But of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. And if we are like them, if we are expecting things to be in the appearance of the eye, in the worldly appearance, to be powerful and significant, then we are going to miss the boat as well. Because either we're going to discount the church as it is, or we're going to try in illegitimate ways to make it the way what we want it to be. Maybe, as we're going to say later, we're going to say, I've had enough of this little bit of leaven here. And waiting for this thing to rise, we're going to use something a little bit more powerful. I don't like mustard seeds. I'm going to get myself a bulb, something nice and big that I know is going to work. We've got to make sure that we understand, you see, that there's something about this mustard seed. There's something about the way that God has designed it, that it, it is the thing that's going to make this giant plant. And there's something about leaven, you see, some power in it. That though it's just a little bit, though it is going to take over things around it, it's going to bring people to faith in Christ in the way that nothing else could possibly do. So, you know, if you didn't use leaven, you wouldn't have bread, would you? You'd have something. You'd not have bread as we understand it, a risen loaf with this, this leaven in it. And so God has appointed these means, which are very, very weak. Again, here we are. We've got water. And we've got this, this word, this book. There's no multimedia extravaganza. There's no great event. There's no great uh, song and dance. There's no triumphal uh, things involved in this. These are very simple things. And Jesus says, that's right. That's the way the kingdom of God appears 
And yet, I'm going to use it to make something great, powerful. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked and beheld a great multitude which no one could number of all tribes, nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. You know, you remember the, the context we once preached through the, gospel, the, uh, the book of Revelation. Who is John speaking to as he says to these, these things anyways? The, the seven churches. What is their situation? Are they mega churches? Hardly. They are small and seemingly insignificant churches with their backs against the wall being persecuted, some of them very, very deadly persecution, all of them in various ways, except for one really, uh, under pressure from the world around them. It doesn't seem like much. And if you are in that situation, you might say, how is God's promise ever going to be? Are we actually going to be wiped off the face of the earth? We, in this, we are here in this, this Roman city and, and we are accounted as nothing. And it seems that we're being trampled underfoot. But no, he, he opens the veil. He, he pulls back the curtain to see, in fact, what is going to happen. What the end of these things. Though it appears at the moment this way, so small, so insignificant. There's a great multitude in eternity which no one could number. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Well, this is the kingdom. Despite all appearances of being so weak and insignificant, it will become great and powerful. Now, if this kingdom is going to be so large and so wondrously expansive, I suppose then that you could hardly avoid it. There must be many, many ways into it. Like some extremely large building, like going to this sage. You know, there's so many exits, there's so many ways into one of those particular concert halls. Surely, something so large will have many fire exits and entries and all the rest of it. But actually, our third point is that the gate into this kingdom is narrow. It says in verse 23, Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? I don't know what lies behind this man's question. It's hard to tell, but let's just say it was sincere. Let's just say that it was absolutely a sincere and genuine question that he had. What information would he have had to go on that would lend itself in the Old Testament to thinking maybe there are few? Well, 1 Kings 19. You know, the, this is the one time where the actual numbers of God's people, the, the, the number of God's people is actually mentioned And this is Elijah. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, I alone am left. Here he is, a prophet of God. And he says, I look out around and I see no one. I'm the only one that's left. And they seek to take my life. The Lord said to him, Verse 18, I, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, that's more than one. But in relation to the numbers of people in Israel at that time, that's still not a lot, 7,000. What other information might he have? Well, he could go back all the way to the flood, couldn't he? And, and he could look at the people who lived before the flood, and there were many. And how many were actually on the ark? Just Noah and his, his family, just, just those few souls that were saved. 
Or maybe he could go and look at Sodom and Gomorrah and that great city of many people. You remember, of course, how, how Abraham pleaded for their lives and how he said, Lord, you surely wouldn't destroy it if there were maybe 50 people or maybe there was a little less than that or maybe a little less and a little less. And actually, it's just, just Lot. And his wife, oh, not even his wife makes it out. Just Lot and his two daughters, that's it. And from all these things, he just might get the idea then that there are few who are saved. And so he asks the question, are there few who are saved? And you know what the Lord says? The Lord says, I think, something very important for us all. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know, I don't know in the end how many people there are. I cannot give you a proportion. I cannot give you any kind of number whatsoever. The word of God does not make all that clear. And we could spend a lot of time on idle speculation as to whether there are few or many or exactly how many there are. We know that the the word of God uses both of those in different senses. That there are many, a fantastic number that are going to be saved. But yet it also speaks of comparatively few. But the, the point of all this is what about you? What about you? It, it's a, a wonderful thing to try to theoretically uh, consider the extent of the kingdom, the numbers of these things. But what's important for us is for us, you, to strive to enter through the narrow gate. And now he goes on, we'll speak on it another time, of the illustration of what happens when the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you're from. But it is enough for us this morning to consider what an awful, awful thought that would be. What an awful, awful thought the day that that ark was completed and the the door was shut everyone was aboard and the door that lord himself closed the door and and one day the entrance to the kingdom is going to be shut and you will have no further opportunity to enter into it and his word to you is strive to enter through that narrow gate you know the parallel verse in matthew 7 says this enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by it Many. No, it is to God's glory that there's but one way into this great kingdom. He's building it made look insignificant. We know where it's going. It's going to be a huge, amazing, powerful kingdom. There's only one, one way into it. And fourthly and finally, we should strive to enter that one way. Strive to enter that narrow gate. That means that word means that we should endeavor with continuous zeal to do so. It should mean that we have this as our great ambition. This is the thing that we desire to do above all else. It doesn't say work yourself into that, but this is, this is your great ambition. This is the thing that you're seeking to do through that one narrow gate. Now, the implication, by the way, is when he says that there are many who are going to enter through some others or are going to try to do it but, but will not be able, the implication is that they'll be trying other ways to get in, the wrong ways, the illegitimate ways. So it's not like there is one entrance way that is extremely difficult once you've found it and gotten there for you to get in and it's going to require a great amount of work for you to get to. No. 
Actually, that one narrow pathway is salvation by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and it is there as a gift waiting to be given to you through faith. There's no working to get in it. The problem with the others, you see, is that they're not going to this one appointed narrow gate, this narrow entrance way. They're going to everything else that they can find. Again, you can imagine a situation of a kingdom on earth and it has a big wall around it and there's only that one authorized entranceway and and Satan has gone around painting bigger entranceways all around it to get to fool you and he's put signs there and he's given the appearance of and there are many people heading to that entranceway and you just might make the mistake of trying to go through some of those other ways and you would come and you would find yourself Denied entry because there is no other way except that one. There will be many who will try to enter through some other way. Narrow is the gate that the Lord has given to us. And what is that narrow gate? What is that narrow gate by which one enters into the kingdom of God? The answer is so very clear, isn't it? In John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is this gate. He is this doorway. He is this entrance. John 10, 7, And Jesus said to him again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear him. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and find pasture. He is this door. He is this entranceway. And there are many, many false ways into the kingdom. Many false religions are out there that say you can save yourself. There are many false gospels even that claim to be Christian and say you can contribute something to your salvation in one way or another. Yes, there's Christ. But don't forget your own contribution. Little knowing that any contribution at all besides the shed blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, who died on the behalf of his people, anything at all means you have now come to a false gate. And it's, it's, it's no entry into the kingdom. It is a byway into hell. Christ says he is this door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And it is a good thing that it is a narrow way. You see, it's by God's design. By God's design. There couldn't be many, many ways into his kingdom because there is only one name given under heaven by which men may be saved. Of course, it couldn't be broad that admits of various angles on this one because Christ himself has made it so clear that his gospel is but one thing and one thing only. And any addition to it, any subtraction from it, means that you have made it into something else entirely. I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And Jesus' word to you this morning is that you ought to strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter it. How do we, what are the implications of these things? Very clearly, there is no other way to Christ. There there is no other way into this kingdom of which we've just been describing. There's no other way to get into heaven apart from this gate. You know, the world is continually telling us to do something else. We understand that, don't we? We understand that even in war, there's plenty of examples. Some of you are, are history buffs and you probably know. 
that there are in, in various ways when there is an invasion or when there is uh, a, a military operation of various ways, you actually seek to mislead the enemy. You, you change the signs around. You turn them in the opposite direction. You give them misleading indications and, and, and hoping that they will get lost. Satan's a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. His whole purpose is to try, indeed, to bring us down and to kill us and to bring us into hell like himself. So, of course, this whole world is going to be full of false ways into the kingdom, ones that promise great things. There's but one way, but one way into this kingdom, and it is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that thing that we can never, ever forget. We must set Christ clearly before us, and we must ignore all other ways. How do we, and how do we set Christ clearly before us? By, by hanging on, clinging on as, as a dying man to these means of grace that he has set before us. They don't really seem to be much, do they? In fact, the, the church itself sometimes seems to be embarrassed about these means and would choose something more powerful, more wonderful. They would go after that. Forget this lousy mustard seed. I want this huge and impressive mighty ball because it looks so much more powerful. Forget this, this leaven. I'm going to find some sort of radiation machine or something else like that. that will, you can see it at work. You can see just how powerful it is. God didn't put those means in place, and he's not going to bless them. And you know, I'd go a little bit before, before go beyond that as well to say, it's not just that these things are accidentally so small and insignificant in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of us sometimes. It's that they are designed by God to look that way. That's the whole point. Why would he do that? Why? Does, is there any, any rationale to it? The answer is yes. In 1 Corinthians, there is a reason for it. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory. God is not going to share his glory with another And so he chooses these things which, yes, in our own sight, are so small, so weak, so insignificant, just so when we see their enormous power, just so when we see the completed work of the kingdom and is inhabited in in heaven by those innumerable multitudes from every tribe and tongue, we, we say, Lord, you have done this. We don't look at some lily that came from a bulb in great wonder that it could come from that, but we look at the enormous mustard plant, and say, how did it come from that little seed? And so it'll be in the kingdom of God. And again, I, I, I say this then, to those who have not yet entered into the kingdom, this is important for you to understand. Because sometimes those who are on the periphery, those who are on the outside looking in, those who are almost tempted to become Christians, those who are thinking along those lines, they look at these means and say, but What? How is that going to save me? I want you to understand that you're saved by God. You are saved by the power of God. By the grace of God. And these means that he gives us, which is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
That instrument that unites you, that instrument that saves you, is designed to look weak. Do not doubt it, but rather embrace it. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then finally, as we think of some of these applications, I would say that we should consider this means of covenant baptism before us. One thing, one aspect of it that is so beautiful is just what was mentioned by John in in the announcements. God has determined ways in which the, the, the church is going to be built up, and some of them just aren't very cool. They're not very trendy. And one of, it's just the growth of covenant families, just a biological growth, you see. This is the way it's always been from the very beginning, that God was going to use covenant families to build his kingdom. Now, we can be so thankful that in addition to, the, these, in addition to that, that in the, the days of the new covenant, this promise goes out to the whole world, and God is bringing out more people and grafting them into the covenant and establishing many new covenant families, and we could, should never, ever lose our focus on the, the mission of the church as we bring this word to bear out there. But neither should we lose the focus of doing it here among the people of God and, and bringing up new covenant families. It is no lesser thing that a covenant child is brought into this world and is baptized and is brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This too is a wondrous co-equal way in which the Lord has determined to build up his church. And we should be very thankful for it. And we should be reminded as we think of this that not everyone has this immense privilege. We speak of the the narrow door. Not everyone is given this. But rather these children of believing parents as we bring them before the Lord and expectation, hopeful expectation that the Lord will bring them, yes, to embrace these wonderful promises brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord And there to take their place in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we never do justice to these great things. And we ask, Lord, that you, in fact, would bring to bear the the truth of God that we need. And, Lord, that we particularly would marvel and would worship you in the goodness of God, the glory of Christ in building up his kingdom. Truly, Lord, we understand that not just in the sight of the world, but often in our own eyes, your kingdom seems to be very small and insignificant. But Lord, help us through the eyes of faith to see, actually, Lord, it is immensely powerful. And it is going to be large beyond all reckoning. And therefore, Lord, let us not lose heart. Let us not lose confidence in the ordinary means of grace. And let us not lose confidence, indeed, in the ways in which you have of building up your church. Heavenly Father, we look to the day in which we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. But at the moment, Lord, help us to put another brick into the wall. Help us, Lord, to do as you've called us to do. And yes, Lord, we pray one more time. If there are any here who have not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ We pray, Lord, that they would strive to enter into that narrow gate, that they would seek the Lord, that they would turn away from all other pathways, all other entrances which Satan has created and painted on his 
false doorways. But that rather, Lord, we would embrace the one true and narrow way into the kingdom of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.